Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 11th, 2011, and my guest is Diane Coyle. Her latest book is The Economics of Enough, How to Run the Economy as if the Future Matters. Diane, welcome back to Econ Talk. It's great to be here talking to you. Hi. Your book discusses the major challenges facing the world right now. Uh, they're economic and some not so uh, economic, but they all involved economics. Uh, what are those challenges? And uh, then we'll talk about what we might do about them. The trigger for writing the book, as so many books recently, was actually the financial crisis, which was a real shock to me, as to many other people. And the moment when I was most appalled by what was going on was when I listened to the news about the interbank market drying up, and I thought, you know what, the payment system might stop working too if the banks don't trust each other. I'd better go and get all the cash I possibly can. And for our economist who got to that point, that was a pretty, pretty serious crisis. But as I reflected on that, I thought, you know, there are some other pretty serious crises too. We have the issue of climate change, and the science there is um, is contested, but I think scientific consensus opinion is just a pretty serious problem, but lots of disagreement about what to do about it. There are crises related to our societies as well, um, particularly in the United States and the United Kingdom, inequality, with a lot of people arguing that it's got to really quite an extreme point and is socially unsustainable. We have um, a longer burn financial crisis that's linked to the way we've touched our societies in the promise to pay pensions and welfare and support through public services, aging populations. This is an area where the U.S. isn't quite so badly off as some other Western economies, but in countries like Germany and Italy, for example. Um, the fiscal position is, is completely unstable, and that debt just isn't spoken about. And as I pondered these questions, uh, going to the cash machine to get at the ATM to get out as much cash as I could at the time, I thought that there was actually probably a common link between all of them, which was that perhaps we'd gone wrong in how we weighed up benefits today versus benefits tomorrow, and we weren't as good at thinking about about the long term as we ought to be and evaluating how serious problems might be over a much longer time frame. And that then takes you into questions of politics as well. So I guess I'd say this is a book of political economy rather than straight economics. That central issue, let's talk about that as a starter. Um, the, this worry that I think many people have that we don't pay enough attention to the future and we focus too much on the present. Um, now I have I have four children. Do you have children? I've got two. Okay, so I think about them a lot uh, as a parent. Uh, I focus a lot on where they're going to end up in their life. So, something I have very little control over, but a little bit. But I think about them quite a bit. Uh, I run my life quite a bit thinking about them and, and the decisions I make, about what to do with my money, what jobs to take. Uh, children play a huge role in my life, and I suspect in most parents' lives. Indeed. So I, I don't think anybody 
would call my decision-making myopic, short-sighted, um, live for the moment. Now, having children changed me, uh, but folks with children, which there are many, tend to look forward a lot. Um, and yet, in some areas of our lives, we don't do that. And one of those, of course, is is public policy. We don't seem to do such a good job in public policy looking forward. So my question is, do you see this problem as a personal problem or a structural problem with how incentives, either for politicians or business people, have been set up? How do you see this problem that, that you're worried about the future? Uh, what's, the, what's causing it? I, I do think it's a problem of the system, a structural problem, as, as you're suggesting, because, as you say, many of us are parents and think about the future, and we actually go through some length to, to plan our affairs so that we um, leave an inheritance, we educate our children, we do clearly plan carefully for the future in that sense. So I think it's not an individual issue, but a structural one. And I think it's partly um, a question of not being aware of the implications of some decisions. And the issue of social security, pensions, welfare in the European countries is quite a good example of that. Because I'm not aware of any government that actually counts and publishes the figures on what its obligations <laughs> to future generations are yeah. under the structures we have at the moment. Yeah, it's, it's... And they're, they're very large numbers. For the US, uh, Larry Kotlikoff has estimated 200 uh, trillion, very, very large numbers that put into the shade the actual figures for debt um, that we look at in, in the published statistics. And I think measuring some kind of national balance sheet is actually a really important step on the way to framing a longer-term perspective for public policy. I mean, in a sense, I think politicians need some ammunition to help them make longer-term decisions because the short-term pressures are so intense. And that's the pressures of partisan politics, which on the one hand is a terrific thing because it's part of the vibrancy of democracy, but on the other hand, it puts a lot of weight on um, uh, satisfying short-term interest groups, as, as Nancy Olsen famously um, pointed out in his work. And there's also the re relentless pressure of the media in the 24-hour, uh, every-minute communication age. So I think it's really difficult in public life to have a long-term perspective. I think measuring better and publishing statistics is a really important part of the ammunition to start chipping away at that. Yeah, that's a great – it's one of your themes in the book is the importance of, of measurement and what we measure. Um, what's troubling is that, as you point out, there are a lot of public voices that have exposed some of the hidden costs that have – that are, we're, gonna, we're going to face. I mean there's a few of them, as you point out. There, there's Social Security. Reti there's retirement promises. There's health promises. In the United States, it's Medicare. Um, there are public pensions, which are increasingly uh, in the news here in the United States in March of 2011. So a lot of public employees have been promised fixed amounts of money that actually they're fixed, but some of them rise with inflation, uh, with fixed costs of living, and no money's been set aside or not enough money has been set aside. So that number is also alleged to be in the trillions down the road. Uh, there are the promises that we have made, and you, you talk about these in the book, of debt uh, to pay back future uh, uh, 
creditors from loans that we have taken out in the present. So there appears to be a train wreck coming, a really bad train wreck of promises not able to be kept. So one way to prevent that, of course, as you suggest, is to publish what the promises are. But we do kind of know about them. So I wonder if the problem isn't more a uh, unpleasantness to put off till tomorrow what we think we might be able to. I'm sure um, that's an operation. It's it's kind of human nature, isn't it, that um, problems do have to be pressing and crises do have to be quite serious for people to do anything about them. I mean, if you just think about the financial crisis and how serious that was, and in a way you could argue that relatively little has changed despite the intensity of the crisis. So, so I do think that's true. But I've been wondering also, and I, I write about this as well in the book, about uh, the sort of public morality, the sense of um, shared values and, and shared commitment to society. And I look back often to the Victorians and how they thought about the future. I travel a lot to Manchester here in the UK. It's a, a city whose heyday was in the Victorian era. And it's a great example of the way the people who built a generation's worth, two generations' worth of dynamic economic growth at the same time thought about their legacy 100 years from now. And we're still using the buildings, the, uh, the, the sewage systems, the railway systems, all of that infrastructure that they put in place. We've been living on it ever since. And I've sort of given up the habit of thinking about the permanence of our societies and the possibility of progress and, and what legacy we're going to leave for future generations. Well, I had, I had a guest on um, uh, Matt Ridley, and he – this was a few months back. He made the observation that it's rather bizarre to think about what generations 50 and 100 years will need from now. Yes, there's certain basic responsibilities that are a good idea, but those Manchesterians – is that what we call them, by the way? They, they have, Mancunians. Mancunians. I knew they had an, an interesting name uh, and for, for American uh, – Economist named Greg Mankiw. It must be a very strange um, thing to think about Mancunians being <laughs> not people in favor of a Pagovian tax on carbon, but rather people from the city of Manchester. But uh, Mancunians, people in Manchester, they did provide some basic things that were fortunately were still able to use, but they, of course, had no idea what our lives would be like. Um, so one view says it's really preposterous, maybe even. Um, hubris to, to think we could we can plan for the future at that level. But certainly there is planning that that's a good idea. And I would say one of the most basic things we could we should plan to do is not not to be irresponsible. So that, that would seem to be a modest level of planning uh that we're not doing a very good job on. But, I think the definition that um I like as as the minimum ambition is making sure that the next generation to come along can be at least as well off in its living standards and quality of life as, as your generation. So in other words, not eating the different kinds of capital that make the economy tick. Yeah. Well, it's going to be interesting to see if we've done that. Whoever, you know, I hate to say we because there is no we here. There's no uh, coordinated consensus activity. That They're just emergent phenomena that, phenomena that, that may burden or help the next generation. But I want to go back to something you said a minute ago that it's another theme of the book, which is which is the issue of social social fabric, trust, and so on. I, another way to think about this is, is culture. 
not in the sense of the arts, but what we think of as corporate culture, what we think of as you know, family culture, what we think of as, as what it means to be a good citizen, a good neighbor. And I, I want to make a claim, and I want you to react to it. My claim is that Adam Smith believed that capitalism made us better people. I don't think that view is widely held anymore. Uh, I still believe in it, and I would argue that much of what we see is the breakdown of trust and, and responsibility. What we see is an increase in corruption, self uh, pursuit of of, um, of self interest, is coming from bad public policy rather than inherent to um, the world of commerce. What do you think of that claim? Um, I have a lot of sympathy with that. Um, I, too, am a tremendous fan of capitalism. I do think capitalism works well in the context of um, a certain kind of society. And I think we've seen plenty of examples around the world of countries where capitalism has been introduced without the sort of benefits for essentially freedom and the consequences of the living standards that we've seen in the West. And I guess the great experiment in that respect, which will prove or disprove a lot of theories is, is, is communist China and uh, we'll see whether the capitalism can work without the, the fabric of a democracy and a liberal society but, but having said that I think um, the kind of at least the sense of progress and shared effort that characterised capitalism in its early days helped deliver the growth and the freedoms that we all enjoy now and that's the kind of thing that, that has started to corrode a bit I think if you're looking at um, the role of public policy in that, well, it's pretty complicated to disentangle, but I think it's really hard to argue now that certain welfare systems that many Western economies have had have actually uh, damaged the very people they were trying to help. They've trapped people yeah. in certain places and without the ability to connect to the labor market and better their lives and improve the lot of their children. I don't really think even on the left or progressive side of politics, there is a lot of serious dispute about that fact now. Yeah. What I was thinking about, I was you know, thinking about your remarks about the Victorians. I, I want to bring it to the financial crisis and get get your your take on this uh, this idea, which is, you know, Wall Street right now in America, and I'd, I'd be interested in, in a, a British perspective in terms of, say, the London financial markets, if there's a similar feeling, but... In America today, we look at – Americans, I think, look at Wall Street and see it as a um, a very unhealthy co- culture, heavily materialistic, no regard for um, the well-being of, of the people who are allegedly being served. So this relentless pursuit of profit, which encouraged the creation of mortgage-backed securities, the derivatives they were based on uh, – that, that were based on them and led to this – this frenzy of of um, maniacal investing that just collapsed ultimately with horrible costs for everyone other than Wall Street, um, and so I think Americans look at that and they say, "Well, this is capitalism run amok." And my counterpoint to that is that in the 1980s and 1970s and 1960s, and even into the 90s a little bit, when investment banks were private partnerships. Um, they didn't act like that. There was a very different ethos among those those folks, um, and they, when they went public and could play with other people's money, 
they became more reckless. And when the, the other people's money they were playing with turned out to be taxpayer money, it's not surprising that they were particularly reckless. I suspect – well, so what I'm wondering is that culture I think is is endogenous. Do you think that's true in the UK? Do you think this story I'm telling has any any merit in terms of the endogeneity? Um, I think so. I think it's a bit more complicated, though, so let me um, explain. And there's certainly the same sense amongst the general public that uh, greed has run a mark in the city of London as well. They see people who, whose banks are owned by the taxpayer, or majority owned by the taxpayer, paying themselves multi-million pound bonuses. This is time when the Bank of England is still subsidizing the costs, the funding costs of the banking system here to the tune of £100 billion a year. Same thing here. And the banks made a £40 billion profit. Yep. So despite the massive subsidy, they, they're still not making profit and they're, they're rewarding themselves for supposed success. And in a context of really quite severe public spending cuts with services and jobs going in the public sector, um, there, there is complete outrage. Uh, do you say people think this is capitalism that's gone wrong? I think it's more to do with the fact that, on the one hand, the governance of banks has been weak, and on the other hand, there's not enough competition in many financial markets, retail and wholesale financial markets. So the people who run the banks have been able to extract those economic rents from their shareholders on the one hand and their customers on the other, and then, as you point out, now the taxpayers as well. So I would argue that there's nothing like a free market, actually, in um, or a healthy market in, in the banking system, and that's what needs to be addressed. How I think also the point you raise about ownership structures is very interesting. If, if we had very strong governance on behalf of shareholders, then the public ownership wouldn't matter. The, the fact that there are public-listed companies wouldn't, wouldn't matter so much. But if we don't have good governance, then I think a partnership is actually a much better structure disciplining the activities and the risk-taking of the investment banks. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a neglected aspect of the crisis because it preceded the crisis, but I think it sowed the seeds. And my my claim, which is has is merely consistent with the facts, it's not a proof. But my claim is that the growth in publicly traded investment banks was a response to the uh, bailouts uh, that we saw in the United States starting around 1984 with Continental Illinois and through uh, the Mexican crisis in 1995, the savings and loan crisis. Uh, and I think a lot of investment banks realized they could tap into that expectation of credit or bailout. That's a that's a speculation without much evidence. But I, it's a st- well, I, do, I think I'd agree with the speculation. I mean, in effect, uh, we're saying that moral hazard is a much more serious problem than has been realized as these crises, successive crises, unfolded. Uh, and that is that word "moral" coming back into the debate yeah, again? Yeah, that's right. It's a funny word, isn't it, in that phrase? But it it does suggest su- suggest um, something more fundamental going wrong. Yeah. Is there a lot of in the United States? One of the sources of um, of that outrage that you mentioned in the UK is is the um, it's sometimes called the revolving door. Uh, a lot of people from investment banks end up sprinkled throughout the regulatory structure. Uh, and the decision-making structure of Treasury and uh, the Federal Reserve, and it's a very unhealthy um, synergy, in, in my opinion, and in most people's opinion. 
of course, those are the people who understand how markets work, supposedly. So it's natural that they would move back and forth between regulatory and, and investment bank activity. But I find it it's very disturbing. And an example I always refer to is that in the – I think it was the week or two before the AIG bailout, the rescue, um, Hank Paulson, the Secretary of the Treasury, spoke with Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, who was his successor as CEO. Uh, they talked 24 times on the phone. Um, they didn't talk about their kids in summer activities. They talked about probably what AIG uh, meant to Goldman Sachs or maybe to the world. But they, and from the perspective of Lloyd Blankfein, they were sort of similar. So one of the things I think that people are really upset about, and I am, is the political influence of the investment banks. Is that problem – is there a similar problem in the UK and similar outrage? I think it's certainly similar in the sense that the financial elite is a pretty narrow circle of people and they would all know each other. I think it's really hard for regulators to actually capture all the information that they would have needed anyway to understand really what, what was going on. It was, it, it, it was a really quite rare individual who had spotted exactly what the problem was in the build-up to the crisis and therefore could diagnose exactly what regulatory steps to take. And, you know, even afterwards, I think there's a wide range of explanations for what happened and it's quite hard to pin the blame on, on any single one of them. So I have sympathy with regulators as well, even though I do agree with you that they're too close, they have been too close to the banking industry. I do have some sympathy for the task because if the boards of the banks, if the non-executive directors of the banks didn't actually know what was going on, then it's really hard for an external body to have access to the information they would have needed as well. And that, too, puts the emphasis back on um, the way that you conduct your own business and how genuinely you think you need to serve your shareholders and serve your customers. And when I've spoken to the kind of eminent senior bankers in London who are now dignified chairman, so that the prime of their career in the banking industry was in the 70s and 80s, they, they have been quite horrified and embarrassed about yeah. the way they see their successes behaving. The problem, yeah, the, the, the problem I have with that, uh, the sympathy thing, and I, I have that, I don't mean to suggest, although I've been very critical on this program about the behavior of the people like Hank Paulson and, and Ben Bernanke, it's, it's of course easy to sit in this chair and Fairfax, Virginia, and, and take pot shots at them. They were scared. Um, I don't think they malevolently sat around and figured out how to exploit taxpayers. I think they were genuinely scared. But I think the issue is who's got the incentive to be prudent? And politicians and regulators will never have that incentive uh, because it's not their money. It should be. We should try to create a system where the banks have the incentive to be prudent because they're the ones closest to the information and the money. And when you have a system where that's not true, you should expect nothing but disaster. So although I'm you know, sympathetic at some kind of personal level, I, I don't think Hank Paulson or Ben Bernanke or Alan Greenspan are, are malevolent, evil people. I do think the system it didn't give them an incentive to be careful. Um, so I – I would um, also go back to the competition point. A lot of people are kind of scared of competition. They don't see they don't see the point of it. And I spent eight years on the competition authority here in the UK, and people would say to me, 
well, we don't want competition in healthcare, actually. We just want the one that we have to work. Yeah. And they don't understand the dynamic effect of competition in serving customers and, and encouraging innovation. And if you think about the lack of the, the, the innovation in, in some areas and lack of it in others in banking, it's quite, it's quite revealing. Because all of the innovation that I can see, and people say it's an incredibly innovative industry, but all of it that I can see was in creating complexity and instruments that didn't really have any purpose to serve customers. It was, it was all for the purpose of the industry itself. And I oh, contrast that with what happened in, in Kenya, where a mobile phone company was kind of able to um, persuade the banking authorities that it could offer, a, in effect, a banking scheme on mobile phones. And now a very large proportion of the Kenyan population, which previously had no access to financial services at all, can transfer money, pay bills, pay in shops, buy insurance through text messages on their mobiles, which is a fantastic customer-facing innovation. We can't do it in the UK. The, the banks are doing mobile services that are, in effect, offering the same services to the customers they already have through a different means, but they're not actually innovating to serve their customers. That's a great, great example. Um and when you talk about the, the the alleged innovation, which I'm ashamed to say I've defended before I thought more about it and understood it better, because it does look innovative, the financial in, instruments, the you know the mortgage-backed securities. And of, co- and of course, there, there are many mainstream and, and very thoughtful people, at least seemingly thoughtful people, who who want us to go back and do – we've got to have that again. You know, <laughs> so there are people who defend that that innovation. But as you point out, I think – Securitization, which is very clever, uh, was mainly used as a way to comply with regulatory uh, strictures and yet still make a lot of money, which is what I'd expect them to do. Again, that's not surprising, but uh, we shouldn't glorify it as, as innovation that serves the customer. Or I mean, on the contrary, it, it gave mortgages to people who couldn't afford them, so it was disserving customers. Yeah, it reminds me of the innovation of, uh, of, of agricultural regulations in the United States. Unbelievably opaque, impossible for an outsider to understand, and mainly designed to serve a very small group of people and make them very rich. Um, very distressing. So, um, regulation of that kind actually creates barriers to entry. Absolutely. One of the main reasons there are no new banks is because the complying with the financial regulation is, is too high a barrier. You mentioned, and we talked about this in your previous uh, appearance, the, the competition authority. Is that the equivalent uh, in, in the UK of the antitrust? Division of the United States, do you know? What does it do? Yes, what does have, it do? We have, um, at the moment, we have two. We have the Office of Fair Trading, which is a gatekeeper authority. It will refer serious issues to the Competition Commission, which puts together panels of uh, five members, and I was one of those members, to look at particular mergers or particular markets where there are problems. So are there innovations in policy that might that you think are being missed that might make uh, – Competition occur more naturally. Well, I would really love the there's a, an inquiry into the banking industry taking place here at the moment due to report in the spring. I would dearly love it to say there should be a full competition assessment of the banking industry in the UK. I, I fear they won't go that far, but I think a, a competition assessment that looked really at barriers to entry and whether or not you. Um, entrance, including mobile phone companies, for goodness sake, if they want to, um, if that's possible, I'd, that would be my preferred route. So let me ask you a tough personal question, which you're free to duck and divert into any, mm-hmm. any direction you want. Okay. 
you're on this let's let's say one a person not you a person is on that competition committee just like we have these we have certainly uh regulatory agencies in the united states that deal with with similar things we also of course have legislation that that tries to reform so-called reform the banking system what kind of pressures do you think those folks are under to do something other than quote the right thing that is Right now in the United States, we passed something called Dodd-Frank, a, a, ref- a bill that's supposed to improve the financial system. The strangest thing about it is a lot of it's unwritten. It's going to be written down the road by various agencies. Of course, those agencies, the people who are going to be paying a lot of attention when those regulations get written are the banks. <laughs> most, of, most of us, the regular folk, are not going to pay any attention. Oh, that bill already passed. So I wouldn't be optimistic about how that's going to turn out just on normal incentive grounds. And then I ask, well, how does that process actually work? I don't think the people on the commission get a phone call that says, hey, I'm with such and such bank. Do, do, what, do what's good for me, and there'll be a check in the mail. So that doesn't happen. There isn't bribery, but there must be subtle forms of pressure that, that take place. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think the biggest pressure is um, the fear of saying something radical, actually, or uh, recommending something that seems just an extraordinarily dramatic step to take given where we're starting from. So my, my one, one possible solution to my problem of banks being um, having too much monopoly power would be to say they're too big. They should be broken up into smaller banks. We have uh, four high street um, lenders and deposit takers. Uh, we need, Through a process of um, mergers over the years, over 25 years, uh, those, those mergers need reversing. We need, I don't know, six, eight high street banks instead. That's quite a radical thing for any individual to say. I think actually you, you need a lot of confidence. So maybe it's my own hubris that makes it possible for me to think um, that a competition body ought to be able to say that. But I think I think that's a hard step to take. Right, and if and if somebody put forward such a proposal and the same thing would happen in the United States, people would say, well, that's, you know, that's un, that's un-American. And it might be, by the way, I'm, I'm not sure I'm in favor of it, but I'm just thinking of what the, I'm not in favor of the, of the, that being the best way to solve the problem for sure. But if we're going to keep bailing out banks with taxpayer money, that might be what economists often will call a second best solution. It's, it's a horrible solution, but it beats the alternative. But there'd be tremendous, you're right, you're right there'd be a lot of intellectual pressure and personal pressure of, oh, this is too radical, it's too risky, but of course... You could, take, you could take the banks saying that's a really bad idea, you'd expect that, but I think the really hard thing would be lots of very smart people would write in the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times telling yep. you how stupid you were. Yeah, that'd be awkward. <laughs> um, but it, it's interesting to me that what, what I think happens, and this is uh, something called, uh, Bruce Yandel's put forward called the bootlegger and Baptist theory, the idea that we have both good motives and selfish motives for what we do. And uh, often we tie the – we do the selfish thing, but we justify it with the, with the non-selfish thing, right? So when we apply this at the personal level. So you, know, you, you advocate for the banks, but that would be – you wouldn't, couldn't look yourself in the mirror if you advocated for the banks. So you say it's because it's, you know, it's bad for capitalism or it's um, whatever. You, you find uh, – it's too risky. You find a 
altruistic reason to explain why you're doing it. But deep down, maybe you're doing it because the banks are going to be nice to you when you're done. That's the ugly part of it. What a mess. Yeah, well, let's. Back to, this goes back to your point about the revolving door, which is that um, it feels very flattering to be part of this, this elite and to be to be one of the club. And so, if you start to meet people socially and they look like they respect you and they like you and you're invited to all the posh conferences, then it's it's all the harder to to break away from it. Yeah, I think I think that's a huge part of it. Um, I've suggested. I don't know if it's true. Again, it's hard to prove. You can't prove it. It's just a claim, but. Yeah, if if you don't, for example, if you're not an interventionist, you don't get to hang out with all the interventioners, the interveners. They're not going to they're not going to invite you to the party. So there's a huge, I think, corruption implicit in our profession, which is uh, if you want to play, you got to be in favor of the game. And to say that's a bad game, that the government ought to be out of these things, uh, you don't get invited to the not just the posh conferences. You don't you don't get invited to anything. You're not you're not on the team. Um, let's move on to a cheerier subject. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about the dead issues. You have, I, I just want to say to, to to readers, uh, to listeners that one of the things that makes Diane's book so uh, so different and and enjoyable is that she's extremely thoughtful, uh, as you can tell from listening to her. But she's she's even thoughtful in print. I I have some guests Diane who are very reasonable when I talk to them, but in their books they say very different things. So this is a case where there's a. Uh, a coincidence between the two. But in your book, you have very thoughtful things to say about debt. And you go th- and all these issues, you go through many different viewpoints and you let the reader you have your own views, of course, but you let the reader hear different sides of these issues. What what are the what are some of the scenarios that might play out about public debt and where we might have to uh end up? Where do you think we're headed and what might be done to get us to a good place? Debt becomes a problem if the economy doesn't grow fast enough that there'll be enough to pay it in the future. So um, one pessimistic scenario is that the only way to prevent uh, countries like ours getting trapped by debt where uh, the real interest rate is high enough that it just keeps building up and never shrinks is by very dramatic cuts in government spending or increases in in taxation. And that, of course, is what the UK government is doing. I think probably uniquely amongst um, the larger economies, although obviously Ireland and Greece in their um, sovereign debt crises are having to act in the same way as well. But a more optimistic or more comfortable path would be if we can can grow the economy faster. And um, the trouble is that raising long-term productivity growth has proven to be quite a hard thing to do. And through the 1990s and early 2000s, we we saw the impact of the communications revolution on productivity growth in the U.S. I haven't seen any updates of um, the long-term estimates lately, but it's hard to believe that we could achieve the same again because, you know, we've had the communications revolution and it's still playing out. It's not obvious that the growth is going to improve. But if it did, that would be terrific. Growing the economy would be fantastic. Um, There are alternatives to... If the, debt, if the problem is pensions and, and older people who are not working are claiming um, on Medicaid and equivalent systems here, then maybe people should work longer. Um, maybe we can have innovations in health that means that they lead more productive lives for longer and can stay in the labor force. There are lots of countries where there are still um, large 
groups of unemployed people, especially young people, where a large portion of, of women don't go out to work. And if you get those people working productively, you can you can raise the growth rate. So there are, there are other options. They can play out in other ways. It doesn't have to be um, we must cut back now. But if we're not going to cut back now, then governments need to give a lot more thought to how to increase the productivity of the economy. Well, let's divide this into two parts. The one, the the debt itself, and the second, the promises, the programmatic promises, either through pensions or or retirement programs like Social Security. Let, let's just start with with the debt itself, and I want I want to get your take on what's going on in in England right now. Our perception over here is that England, as you say, has perhaps uniquely taken a very different step. They've cut spending. Very ironic in the, the land of Keynes. They've cut spending is, is the impression we have because they believe that even if that had a short-term negative effect, which is – I don't – I'm not sure that's true. I'm a skeptic about Keynesian economics. But even if that's true, the risks down the road of, of excessive debt are so large that it's worth it to do that in the short run so that in the medium or longer run that the system will be healthier. In the United States, we're going right now in the opposite direction. We're going to run a $1.6 trillion deficit again, roughly – it's the third year in a row I think. We've run a one, or third or fourth year plan that will run at least a one-something trillion dollar deficit. Um, first, tell me what is factually going on in your country because I do hear that there's some – that they didn't really cut. They just slowed down. Have they actually cut public spending? And two, what do you think of this argument that it, that it's crucially necessary to avoid a worse problem of, of debt service? Well, there are cuts in public spending. The assessment's complicated by not knowing how many um, people are going to be unemployed, and therefore there are some automatic payments that go alongside that, so it's a little bit hard to predict. Um, and, of course, there's the interest payment on the debt as well, which is going up. But in terms of services, this is a real significant retrenchment in in the government. And I think it's partly to do with the economics, and it does seem to have had an impact on financial market perceptions of the UK. Given the level of debt and the deficit here, I'm, I'm not sure that we'd be in uh, such a comfortable position in the financial markets if, if the government didn't have this, this program. But I think there are also... Um, deeper economic and political reasons for doing it as well, which goes back to what we were discussing a little while ago about ending the dependency on government. And I was really struck by a story I saw on the local news about a voluntary group um, which sends women out to help mothers who've got uh, children, they need some support in the home, um, they go and help with their babies and toddlers. So they interviewed a woman who was getting help. She had triplets. She needed uh, some respite from them, and she got a couple of hours of help a week from a volunteer. And the volunteer was another mum just like her who, who came along to help out. And they were arguing that if the government cut its support of voluntary agencies, then that activity would have to stop, and, and it, wouldn't, it wouldn't go ahead. And I, I thought to myself, but isn't that what friends and family do for each other? And what is the role of the government in this? And I think it's that kind of assumption that nothing can happen without the government making it happen that is also being addressed by the kind of cuts yeah, that it's... happen in the UK. And they don't articulate it all that clearly. There's this phrase, the big society, 
and that's generally taken to mean the voluntary sector must do things instead of the government doing things. I think it's more, I think it's subtler than that. I think it's um, rebuilding some of the self-reliance that has actually evaporated over the past couple of generations. Yeah, I, it's um, it's a fascinating example. Um, I think. Um, well, well, let me ask you first a, a, a factual question. Do you know offhand roughly the size of uh, government spending as a function of the economy as a whole? Forty-two uh, percent or so. So we're at twenty. Quite exact figure, but uh, it's around there. So in the United States, we're at twenty-five right now, twenty-six, way up from three years ago, two or three years ago, when it was more like twenty, uh, which has sort of been the 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 peacetime percentage in the United States has hovered around twenty, and for reasons that perhaps aren't so understood, it's been very difficult to raise more than 20 percent. Uh, despite changes in tax rates, the, the percentage that the government collects doesn't seem to go much above 20. So if you persistently raise – if you persistently spend 26, uh, that gap's going to gonna be a very unpleasant uh, mm. thing down the road. But the UK is at 42. Couldn't, couldn't the US just – Raise our taxes, and couldn't we solve our problem by going to four? That's austerity in the UK, right? Forty-two. Um, well, it's, it's, if it goes down to fourteen below, which is the aim, that will be that will be austerity in the UK. Sort of. It's but... proven very hard to reduce. Mrs. Thatcher had a really good go, and uh, she sort of leveled off the proportions around forty percent uh-huh. for a while, and then it started to climb again. But isn't that strange? Well, I think that reflects. Um, political choices, really. Um, yep. We like to have our health care provided through the government. It's a really popular system in the UK, and that's a decent proportion of, of the total. And um, the majority of people go to uh, state-funded ed- uh, schools as well. So that's another significant proportion. Well, we like to pretend and that we... In, in France and Sweden, they like, they like it to be even higher. They like their government to do even more. I think that's the sort of voter preference. Well, but here in the here in the United States, we like to pretend that that, that we like a private system. <laughs> we don't really have it, right? Yeah, we, that's that's a problem. <laughs> we've, we've got this so-called free choice in healthcare, which where the government, uh, through subsidy of of employer provided healthcare and Medicare and Medicaid, has created a system where ten cents of every dollar is out of pocket. But we think it's a private system. <laughs> it's it's, mm. it's unbelievable. Yeah, so there's a little bit of illusion there, I suspect. Uh, so, on the, do you think what do you think is going to happen in the United States with that debt? Do you think we're going to get in trouble, or just keep more rolling along? The thing that makes me uneasy about U.S. policy is that I'm not, I'm just not sure that we can get out of the situation that we're in any any Western economy without there being some pain. And banking crises on this scale, I mean, any banking crisis, but on this scale, they are really serious shocks to the economy. And, of course, we had a recession, um, but there is, a, there is a perception that the government can fix it so that it's not all that long and deep. And I'm just not sure that it won't stack up a worse problem in the future by not addressing the deficit now. That's my that's my concern about it. I have the and same of course, concern. You can understand that people would like there not to be such high unemployment, and that's the greatest economic evil. One could completely understand that. Yeah. So, why are you worried about that deficit? What is what's the sequence of events that that alarms you? Because the other side, the other side says, 
no, we need to keep running the deficit because that stimulates the economy. I don't agree, but that's the claim. And we can keep paying the – we'll pay the debt off. Like, we'll grow. We'll grow. We'll grow. It's, a, it's a free lunch. Why are you worried? Because um, the lesson of history suggests to me that it, it, the growth won't happen and what we'll get instead is inflation. So when I had uh, figured out that the payment system wasn't going to dry up and I didn't need all the cash, I'd, I checked out through the ATMs at the height of the crisis – I put it on index link bonds instead. Because you're worried about inflation. Yeah. I did something similar, by the way. I thought that that was a very good thing was to put more money into uh, indexed indexed uh, securities. Of course, they're government securities here in the United States, some of them, which is mm. which is maybe not the best way to avoid the problem. But um, I think a lot of people must feel the same way if you look at uh, the way many investors are piled into gold and, of course, real assets like that always appreciate at a time when people fear inflation ahead. So do you think that's going to happen? Do you think we're going to get hyperinflation? And by hyperinflation, I would say I'm, I'm not Zimbabwean levels, but say um, double digits and, and maybe rising. Oh, it wouldn't surprise me to see 70 style levels inflation yeah. again. We have the commodity price push and, and we have the monetization going on. And I just don't see any examples in history that not leading to inflation of 15, 20, maybe 25 percent. And, you know, that might not sound too bad but compared to Zimbabwe, but it's incredibly corrosive. And I remember growing up in the 1970s in um, a family where both parents worked, but on incomes that just didn't keep up, didn't keep pace with inflation. And things got tighter and tighter. My mother would stockpile anything that she saw on sale because uh, she wouldn't be able to afford it in six months' time. It, it's an incredibly damaging phenomenon. And I think economists who say that inflation doesn't matter... Um, you know, if it's 5%, they're right. But if it starts going up, I think they really underestimate the social cost. Yeah, I think um, the economists weren't worried about it either too young or, I think, lack of imagination. But um, it's a bit scary. I agree. Well, let's turn to something uh, more cheerful. Let's, you keep saying that, but we, we seem not to find cheerful things to talk about. I know, but I'm going to try, I'm going to try again. Let, let's talk about uh, things, what might be done. So we've talked about one of the ideas in the book, which is measurement. So go into a little more detail about what uh, measurement improvements we might make, and then let's turn to other things we might do to cope with the mess we're in. Well, I divide the measurement improvements into two categories, really. One is to have a sort of national balance sheet as well as looking at GDP and growth, uh, to look at the stocks as well as the flows, because I think then automatically – that gives you that longer time frame that we were discussing earlier because you'll know if you're eating into um, the resources that are available in the future, even if it looks like the economy is doing really well today. And the other category is looking at a wider range of indicators than, than we typically do to characterize economic success. And I'm not one of those who advocates ditching GDP. I think it's actually a really important indicator. And there are some, particularly environmentalists, who, who say it's... Uh, no guide to our well-being. I completely disagree with that. So I think we need to keep it, but we should supplement it with a range of other things. And um, actually, I've just been reading a very interesting book by Charles Kenny called Getting Better, where he looks at indicators of well-being in developing countries. And there are only two countries where um, GDP per capita has gone down and other indicators of well-being like life expectancy, infant mortality, education levels 
haven't gone up. And, and the two countries that fail on both counts are Zimbabwe and Zambia, so two, two basket case economies. But on, on, on other fronts, things have been getting better around the world. And you just get a much um, broader perspective of how well people's lives are going, I think, if you supplement looking at GDP with looking at other indicators of well-being. And we do that to an extent. We look at unemployment, which is a really important one. But there are others. In Australia, the authorities ask people what they think is important, and they collect those every year. There's an annual publication called Measuring Australia's Progress, and I think that would be a really good innovation in other countries too. What, kind of, things, what kind of things come out on that list that, that are surprising or useful? I don't think they're surprising. I think what it tells you is that the priorities and, and therefore what politicians need to respond to if they're, if they're going to try and intervene in any way. Mm. And um, they range from how nice the parks look and the quality of the environment, the, the air quality in the city, um, congestion. Um, actually, people really hate congestion and getting stuck in traffic. That's, yes, they do. That's a big one, yeah. which is kind of interesting. It's not necessarily a high policy priority. So it's interesting that everybody says that they think it's a, a really, um, really diminishes the quality of their life. Well, one thing that's important about congestion is that the roads are publicly owned. So at least the government, in theory, could do something about it. They could, of course, make mistakes. But a lot of the things I think people are worried about, they hope the government could do something about, but they actually can't. Um, mm. Or they can't do it very successfully, or it leads to other things. But you know, the roads, at least, it's... They're run by the government, so you can, you can imagine them doing something about them. So that's not a bad that's not a bad thing to think about. Um, whether they do the right thing, if we made more paid more attention to it, it's a different matter. Um, <laughs> right here here in Washington D.C., <clears throat> traffic is horrific. There's some discussion of of adding some kind of toll roads on the on the uh, busiest roads, which I have mixed feelings about. That's a long other story, but it, but at least you know if, if we Collected the data on the average commute, maybe it would put more pressure on on the government. I don't know. I think we do well, collect. I would say that, uh, more experimentation in public policy. And uh -huh. One of the downsides of uh, uh, kind of democratic politics that we have is that governments seem to think they have to go uh, wholly for one thing, do it all at once, and never change, never reverse course, never do a U turn. Wouldn't it be fantastic to say, well, we'd like to see whether road tolls really work in practice? So let's have schemes in three cities for five years, and then we'll evaluate it and see. Yeah, what a novel idea. Or let's mm -hmm. do it for six months in one city and see if people like it or don't like it and what they don't like about it, and let's measure the impact. And yeah, There's very little of that. It's, okay, we're now going to have a toll, and it's going to last forever. <laughs> exactly. Um, that, that's, and then if you change your mind, you're humiliated. Yeah. That is a huge issue, by the way, the the – the unwillingness to admit a mistake among um, – it's a human frailty. I'm not sure it should surprise us that politicians are not good at it. But it's a, remarkable to me how hard it is for a politician to say, I made a mistake. Um, this was wrong. Let's not do it again. <laughs> or let's stop doing it now even. They're not even good at that. Um, what else give, – give us some other suggestions. The measurement's one issue. What else do you think would make, make solve some of these problems? Well, the other thing I'd like to think about is getting the public more involved in some of these difficult decisions and trade-offs. Because, you know, we, economists, to a much lesser extent, um, but the politicians certainly, try to pretend that there are no trade-offs and that they can fix everything for everybody. 
And given that we live in democracies with very vigorous media and all the online comments as well, the only way of getting out of that will be to work out how to engage voters much more directly in the thought process that goes into working out the limitations of public policy and, and the trade-offs that there are. And I don't have a single method that I think will work, but I think, like here again, experimentation with things ranging from citizen juries to public consultations to um, uh, presenting data visualized effectively online, any of those things that try to get more of a, a, a reasoned public conversation going will be, will be very important if we want to make any progress. Of course, one of the challenges is we don't have much of an incentive to pay much attention. Um, no. Or to be and careful. It doesn't need everybody to pay attention. I think it needs a kind of core of a certain number of people who will pay attention, and then that will get sorted out That's true. through the mass media to the, to the wider public. That's true. One view is to make it more entertaining. Um, I think uh, if we paid as much attention to politics as we do to sports, we'd probably have much better public policy. I, one of the virtues of partisanship is that it turns – I'm not a – a big fan of partisanship, particularly political partisanship. I don't mind – I like principles, but uh, the idea of my party uh, being the, the thing I care most about is I find bizarre in America, but it's very common. But one of the virtues of that is that it gets people to pay attention. They get they get some more involved. Of course, they self-select and they choose the stream of information that confirms their biases. So I'm not sure it really works very well. It's kind of like saying my sports team is always the best team. There's lots of evidence to the contrary, but I managed to persist in my view of it often in sp despite the evidence. So I'm not sure that would really be a good thing in politics. I'm a bit of a statistics anorak, and I really like to look at the data visualization techniques that are available now. And I think um, there are ways of presenting the kind of measurements that we were talking about earlier in really um, visually forceful ways. And um, that's now being applied to the financial markets, but we could think about ways to you know, present the debt figures or present um, the, um, the figures on uh, growth and all these other indicators we're talking about. And, you know, if you can, if you can show a trade-off in a picture, that's going to be much more effective. So I'm a big fan of this kind of experimentation. That's a great idea. Let's come full circle. We started the conversation with really what's the underlying theme of your book, which is the an insufficient focus on the future, either in policy terms or personal decision-making, a, a failure of prudence, an emphasis on the short term over the longer term. Um, measurement would help with that, right? It might make it clear what the costs are down the road. Any other thoughts on how we might um, encourage responsibility and, and good behavior? With respect to the, the future, particularly. The thing is, is the, the moral question that we keep circling around. And actually, possibly also, the idea of progress. And in the United States and the United Kingdom, we used to be ardent believers in progress, that one generation would be better off than the next. The American dream is all about the potential for bettering yourself and your children's lives. And I think we sort of lost faith in the idea. And... It's, it's a question of, I don't know what the word is, it's not ideology, but, but ideas and, and, and moral values. And politicians in this country, at any rate, I think less so in your country, tend not to talk about that. It's seen as a, a, a somewhat embarrassing thing. But I would love to see 
the Prime Minister here step out and say that the bankers have been immoral and that we need um, a, a stronger sense of values in society. Uh, I think the time might be right for that. This, this sense that there is a crisis, this sense of unease, I think is pretty widely shared. People would differ widely in their, in their diagnoses and specific solutions, but I think the sense that something has gone awry is, is, is widely shared. Yeah, I agree with that. I just don't think we're – I'm not sure I want to get exhortation from my president or my prime minister. I think I'd rather get it from my uh, my family and my religious leaders and authors and other folks, even economists maybe. Um, I, I, I'm not optimistic about the incentives that political leaders face to say those things well and, and in effective ways. Do you agree? Well, I certainly wouldn't confine it just to political leaders. I do think it's a, it's a wider question of leadership. And actually, corporate leaders may well be just as important. Yeah, that that is um, – there are a few who are out there uh, and who before the crisis were, were worried about just the issue of culture and, and morality. Uh, they one do... interesting one who's spoken out recently is Paul Pullman of Unilever, who um, on a, an investor conference call – was asked what was going to happen to the, sh the share price short term. He said, this company's been around for 100 years and it's going to be around for another 100 years. <laughs> so if you, you're welcome to invest in us, but if you care more about next quarter's share price, you might not be interested in doing so. <laughs> uh, he's an optimist in some dimension, at least, that he's going to be around <laughs> in 100 years. That, that's uh, it's bold. <laughs> yeah, indeed. But, but I like that. Yeah, I do too. Anything in closing you want to add? Um. Well, I'm really pleased that you described the book as thoughtful because I don't think I know all the answers and, you know, I don't have a, a, a silver bullet solution at the end of the book. But I, I would love to get people thinking about some of these issues, whether they agree with what I say or not. My guest today has been Diane Coyle. Diane, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>